take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Acts. And if you don't have your Bible this morning, we've provided a copy of the Scriptures underneath the chair in front of you. So you can just grab one there and you'll find our passage on page 917. 917. Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 1, okay? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saint Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name." So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. God, we thank You for this miraculous and glorious account of Saul's conversion. And Lord, we pray that as we have these few moments now to reflect on what took place, we pray, Father, that You would awaken us anew to Your grace and Your mercy and Your love. And Father, we do pray that there might be some here this morning that would taste that grace for the very first time. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, what we have just read is perhaps the most famous conversion story in history. The conversion of Saul the Pharisee to Paul, the great Christian missionary and apostle. In fact, Luke understood this conversion to be of such significance that when he recorded the history of the early church, when he recorded the book of Acts, he recounted this conversion three times. Once here in chapter 9, and Luke narrates the account, And then twice from Paul's voice in Acts chapter 22 and Acts 26. 
So given the significance of this conversion, and given um, the miraculous way in which it occurred and the implications that it has for the church, I want us to spend our time this morning considering Paul's conversion, and in particular considering his conversion in three stages. This will serve as our outline for this morning. First of all, we'll consider that Saul persecutes the church. Secondly, that Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus. And third, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. So those are our three points. Saul persecutes the church. Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus. And third and finally, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, one of the things, and I may have already done this this morning, but one of the things I want to note up front is that as we go through this sermon, I will be referring to this man as Saul, and at various times I may refer to him as Paul. Okay, Because here in this passage, he is known as Saul, but we know him best as Paul, as one who later becomes the great Christian missionary and apostle. But just for clarity's sake, Saul and Paul refer to the same person. Okay, His name changes after his Christian conversion. All right, with that in mind, let's consider our first point. Saul persecutes the church. Look there in verse 1 and 2 when we read these words. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, given Paul's conversion here in Acts chapter 9, I want us to consider what's taking place in the larger context of the book of Acts. So just to refresh your memory, in the book of Acts, the first seven chapters are a recount or a report of the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. And then chapter 7 ends with Stephen stoning in Jerusalem. So Stephen was a Christian in the church in Jerusalem, and because of his Christian faith, he was stoned, he was martyred. And at that point, we are introduced to Saul for the first time. So in chapter 7, verse 58 of the book of Acts, we read, Then they cast him, that is Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this is the first time we're introduced to Saul. He is responsible. He's presiding over the death of Stephen. Then in chapter 8, a decisive event takes place when persecution breaks out against the church as a whole. And we encounter Saul again. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And Saul approved of his execution, that is the execution of Stephen, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then just a couple verses later, in chapter 8, verse 3, we see Saul again. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then we get a break from Saul, okay? So the end of chapter 7, we have Saul presiding over the... Uh, death of Stephen. The beginning of chapter 8, we see that Saul is responsible for this widespread persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Then we get a break from Saul and we're told the story of Philip, the deacon who takes the gospel to the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch. We considered that last week. Now when we come to chapter 9, essentially what's happening in chapter 9 is that Luke is picking up the storyline of Saul's attacks against the church. So the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, there's an interim. And now in chapter 9, Luke is picking up that story. And he he, uh, resumes the account by writing these words. But Saul still, 
breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, what was Saul like before his conversion? Well, given these accounts here and the larger testimony of Scripture, we know that Saul was a Jew. We know that he was a deeply religious man. We know that he was a member of the religious sect called the Pharisees. And we know, and especially we see this in the book of Acts, we know that he hated Christianity. In fact, he was vehemently opposed to the message of Christianity and to its followers. Consider the language Luke uses to describe Saul's disposition towards the church. In chapter 8, verse 3, he was ravaging the church. Again, in chapter 8, verse 3, we see that he was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. In chapter 9, verse 1, he was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. In other words, persecution wasn't just something Saul did on the side. It was the air he breathed. He hated the church, and he was determined to rid the world of the church's existence. This led John Calvin to describe Saul before his conversion as, quote, a wild and ferocious beast, end of quote. And that really is the picture that we have of Saul before his conversion. A wild and ferocious beast who is dead set on destroying the church. Saul would have been happy if no one ever thought, spoke, or heard of Jesus again. If we were to consider Saul in modern terms, we might ask the question, would it be too much to say that Saul was a terrorist? And no, I don't think it would be too much to say that. In fact, that would be a rather apt description of Saul's life and ambitions. Saul was a hardened, violent, religious zealot. And so why does God choose to save Saul? I mean, Saul, as you're reading through the book of Acts, and as you consider the person of Saul, Saul is the last person in the world that you would think would become a Christian. And that is in part why God saved him. Listen to the words of Saul, who would later become Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Listen to what Paul writes. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, and he's going to tell you why. Why did he receive mercy? For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, that is the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, we live in a society that is largely self-absorbed. I mean, most people tend to think, well, of course God loves me, Right? Of course God loves me and accepts me. I mean, how could He not? I'm pretty much the stuff, right? I mean, how could God not just be overwhelmingly pleased and thrilled with all that I am? But there are those who are so aware of their own failures 
and so aware of how they have hurt others, and so aware of how they have made a mess of their own lives that they regularly think to themselves, could God ever forgive me? Would God ever have me as His own? Would God ever love me and embrace me and receive me to Himself? And what Paul is saying is that God saved him at least in part to assure you that he is able to save anyone and that he delights to save the worst of sinners. You might say a blasphemer. Would God save someone who intentionally blasphemes his name? Yes. A hard-hearted zealot? Yes. A murderer, a murderer even of God's people? Yes. A religious terrorist? Yes. Jesus came to save sinners, and not just theoretical sinners, but real sinners. Real sinners who commit real, messy, shameful, destructive sin. God saved Saul, at least in part, so that when the weight of our own sin comes crashing down on us, we would know that in Jesus there really is hope for sinners like us. Secondly, Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus. Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus. Now we see this in verses 3 through 9. Notice this, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you, must, you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So as Saul and his companions are approaching Damascus, Saul encounters the living, resurrected Jesus. Now, one of the things we need to say here right away is that this is a unique event in salvation history. Typically, when one is converted to Jesus, they do not see Jesus visibly appear to them, and they are not called to be an apostle. So this is a unique event in salvation history. However, what we do see is that certain principles that are present in Saul's conversion are to be present in every Christian conversion. It may not be nearly as dramatic. Surely it won't be. It may seem to be very normal in one sense or ordinary in terms of the process. But certain principles that are present in Saul's conversion should be present in all Christian conversions. In other words, everyone who is converted must have a spiritual encounter with Jesus. Everyone who is converted must come to grips with who Jesus is. Everyone who is converted must... Uh, give their own sin to Jesus and trust Him as Savior and commit to Him as Lord. And given that, given the similarities between uh, Paul's conversion and every other Christian conversion that would follow, I want us to consider now three characteristics of this Jesus that Paul encountered on the road to Damascus. Okay, so he encountered this living, resurrected Christ. Three characteristics of this Jesus that we see in our text. One is that he is the real Jesus. 
He is the real Jesus. Notice that on his way to Damascus, Jesus appears to Saul. And Saul, in in terms of Jesus appearing to him, Saul sees a light and he hears a voice. And the voice in verses 4 through 5 say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now this has been pointed out any number of times, but it's worth noting again. We might expect in this situation that Jesus would say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting my followers? I am Jesus and you are persecuting my church. But that is not what Jesus says, right? Instead, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, we should just note, this must have been a terrifying experience. I mean, Saul has been pursuing the Christian church, persecuting them, even putting Christians to death. He has been trying to do everything he can to discredit this Jesus. And now this Jesus, living, resurrected Christ, appears to him. And this Jesus says that he so identifies himself with his church that to persecute them is to persecute him. We talked about in a series uh, during Easter, we talked about from Romans chapter 6, this idea of union with Christ, that when we believe in Jesus, we die with him in his death, and we've been raised in his resurrection, that we're made one with Christ And that's the type of language that's being used here. Jesus says, I so identify myself with my church that when you attack them, you are attacking me. Why are you persecuting me? And as Jesus confronts Saul, and as Jesus speaks to Saul, do you see what is happening? As Jesus confronts Saul, Saul's perception of Jesus begins to crumble before the reality of who Jesus really is. Saul is encountering the Jesus of reality, and at this point, he's not encountering the Jesus of his imagination. You see, Saul had certain perceptions of who Jesus was, but now he's coming face to face with the real Jesus. You know, we all tend to have our own versions of who Jesus is, of who God is. Perhaps you've heard people say, well... I think Jesus would say this, or I think Jesus would do that, or I think God is like this, or I think God is like that. And oftentimes, oftentimes, those are just, that is often a Jesus or a God of our imagination. My friends, understand that a sign, a sign that you are being genuinely converted is that the Jesus of your imagination begins to crumble before the Jesus of reality. And how do you encounter the Jesus of reality? You might ask, how today do we encounter the Jesus of reality? You encounter Him in the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures. Go to the accounts of Jesus in His life like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Read them for yourself and you will find there the true Jesus. And as you begin to discover this true Jesus, you will find that He is different than the Jesus of your imagination. He challenges you. He makes you angry at times. He astonishes you. But you will also find, although He is different than the Jesus of your imagination, He is far more glorious. I remember when I was in high school, I grew up in church all my life. 
knew all the stories and all that, but it wasn't until I began to read the Scriptures for myself intently and read the Gospels and try to discern who this Jesus is that I encountered Him. And I remember thinking, this guy is crazy. And gloriously so. If you're serious about Christianity, then you will have to decide whether you're willing to let go of your perceptions about Jesus and be ready to meet the real Jesus. So Saul encountered the real Jesus. Secondly, he encountered the sovereign Jesus. Sovereign means he rules, he reigns, he's in control. And I'm not sure there's a clearer example of Jesus' sovereign grace in all the Bible than Saul's conversion. John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar, writes, quote, He, that is Saul, who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ, was actually led into it humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed, end of quote. Isn't that remarkable? He's going into Damascus to arrest Christians, but on the way he encounters the living Christ, and in fact he enters Damascus as a captive of that Jesus. How does this happen? Well, what happens is that Saul is captured by the grace of God. God's conquering love overcomes Saul's resistance so that Saul joyfully and willingly submits to Jesus' grace. And Saul never got over this. Later, when he becomes the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Galatia, and he speaks to them of his own conversion experience. And listen to the way he describes the work of God's sovereign grace in his life. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, and then 15 through 16, he writes, For you have heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And Saul never got over this. He knew in dramatic fashion that his salvation was the work and the grace and the mercy of God alone. We could say it this way, it's obvious, but it's, it, it's helpful for us to make it clear. Saul was not, before his conversion, Saul was not seeking Jesus. Saul was not looking for Jesus. Saul was not open to attending investigative Bible studies about who Jesus is. Saul was dead set on ridding the world of the name of Jesus and destroying his church. But when he who had set him apart before he was born was pleased to do so, he revealed his son to him and saved him. And this is how God saves people today. It's not necessarily in the same dramatic fashion. You shouldn't expect a light from heaven or the audible voice of Jesus, but it is with the same relentless pursuit and passionate love and irresistible grace. C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, most of you have probably heard of him. Listen to how he describes his own conversion experience in one of his accounts he writes. He says, quote, Before God closed in on me, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. 
I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut, but I chose to open. Now I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Amiable agnostics will cheerfully talk about a man's search for God, but to me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for a cat. End of quote. Do you get it? Mice don't search for cats. Cats pursue the mouse. And see, people, amiable agnostics, I'm not sure if there's a God or not, but I'm looking into this and I'm looking into that and I'm talking to this person, I'm reading about this. Understand, that is not Christian conversion. Christian conversion is not a polite investigation into the options. But when one is converted, they have the sense that something or someone is after them. Because God searches out His own. And He pursues them relentlessly and calls them to Himself. If you sense that that's happening in your own life, perhaps you're very near to being converted. Third, we see that this is the Jesus who afflicts. The Jesus who afflicts. So he's the real Jesus, the sovereign Jesus, and the Jesus who afflicts. Jesus boldly confronts and pursues Saul. But Saul, if you notice the text, Saul is not, it seems at least, he's not immediately converted. Instead, Jesus plunges Saul into darkness. Do you notice this in verses 8 through 9? Saul rose from the ground, so he's seen Jesus He's, he's been knocked down now. He rises from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul does not immediately become a Christian. Rather, we see that as the resurrected Christ appears to him, Saul then is afflicted. He's afflicted with blindness and he fasts for three days. We can be sure that these three days pressed him to reflect and to pray and to wrestle and to struggle. I mean, and you can imagine all that must have been going on in Saul's mind and in his heart as he had to rethink everything in his perception of the world. I mean, who is this Jesus? Is he the false prophet that I have believed him to be, a blasphemer, or is he in fact the resurrected Christ? Who am I? Am I who I've always thought I am, a defender of the Jewish faith, righteous before God? Or am I a violent opponent of God and His Messiah? And could you imagine Him coming to grips with that reality? And then who are these people, these people I've been pursuing? Are they in fact a religious cult or are they the true people of God? And listen, my friends, for three days Saul wrestled with these things. And when God is dealing with someone, when God is drawing someone to himself, it is not uncommon for them to endure a season of darkness or of difficulty or affliction. And that season, although a difficult season, no doubt is a sweet season. It is a sweet season of coming to grips with who God is of your own sin and need for a Savior, 
and the glorious reality that only Jesus can save you. You may be here this morning and walking through a difficult season, a season of affliction, of difficulty, and that affliction has made you more sensitive to God and to the things of God, to your own failings and your need for God. And listen, I can tell you by personal experience and personal testimony, I know that those seasons can be hard and they can be difficult, but if like Saul, it leads you to everlasting salvation and joy, then praise God for the affliction that drives you to Jesus. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And my friends, it was good for Saul that he was afflicted, that he might know the everlasting salvation and joy in Jesus. Third and finally, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. And this is found in verses 10 through 19. Look there in the passage and we read these words. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Now what I want us to see in these last several verses uh, are five, and we're going to hit each one of these very quickly, five evidences that Saul became a follower of Jesus. And as we walk through these five evidences, consider if these are characteristic of your own life. Very quickly, the first evidence is full acceptance. Notice there in verse 17 we read, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now, this is especially remarkable. Ananias' approach and response to Saul is especially remarkable given Ananias' previous knowledge of Saul and his initial deep reservations about Saul's conversion. You notice in verses 13 and 14, at first, Ananias did not want to go to meet Saul. Essentially, he says to the Lord, Lord, this guy could have me imprisoned, maybe killed. Are you really sure? Are you really sure that this is the real deal? Because if not, I'm going to be in trouble. And then in verse 17, Ananias goes to where Saul is. He lays his hands on him. And then after Saul has this dramatic encounter with Jesus, the first recorded word that a Christian speaks to Saul is brother. Isn't that beautiful? This one who has so violently persecuted the church, who's imprisoned them, put them to death. The first word that a Christian speaks to him, brother Saul. And in that word, Ananias is saying to Saul, you are family. 
God is our father and Christ is our brother and you are my brother in Christ. And God was saying to Saul through Ananias, you are mine, completely mine. My friends, this is the beauty and the power of God's grace and mercy. That when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for all of our sins so that when one calls out to him and when one trusts in Christ, there are no more hoops to jump through. There are no further qualifying rounds. Instead, it is immediate and complete pardon, forgiveness, and acceptance into the family of God. So Saul was accepted. Secondly, he received the Spirit. Look there in verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everyone, and we see this throughout the New Testament, we see it in particular in the book of Acts as well, everyone who trusts and believes in Jesus is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and change us and empower us for ministry. And you might ask yourself, how, how can I know if I've received the Holy Spirit? One way you know is that the Holy Spirit, when He comes into you, He begins to change you and give you a desire for Christ and for the things of God. The third evidence is that Saul could see. He could see. Look there in verse 18. And we read, Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Now, commentators disagree on this, but I believe that Paul's physical blindness in this passage is a symbol of his spiritual blindness. So when Saul is on the road to Damascus and he encounters the living Christ, you see in verse 8 we read, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And the Scriptures remind us over and over again that our eyes may be physically open, but spiritually we may be utterly blind and unable to see. And I believe this blindness that afflicts Paul is a symbol of the spiritual blindness in his life. But when he regains his physical sight, it is a symbol that he also received his spiritual sight. He could see now what he could not see before, that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah and Savior of the world. And when one is converted, they are granted spiritual sight. They can see Jesus for who He truly is. Fourth evidence is that He was baptized. Notice what Saul did when he saw Jesus for who he truly is. Verse 18, then he rose and was baptized. We've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts, and we'll see it many more times. When one believes, they follow Jesus in baptism. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a way to identify yourself with Christ and his salvation. And Saul followed Jesus in baptism. And then fifth and finally, Saul was commissioned to suffer. He was commissioned to suffer. Look there in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We know that as Saul then becomes Paul and becomes the great missionary uh, and apostle of the Christian church, that as he spreads the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, he suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And here we see that Saul is given a mission, but not only is he given a mission, he is called to suffer for the sake of that mission. And if anybody knew what it would cost 
to be faithful to that mission, it was Saul, right? Because he himself had imprisoned Christians. He himself had put Christians to death. He knew what was to come, and he embraced it. He was willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus and his mission. And friends, we may not be called to be a pioneer missionary like Saul, but all followers of Jesus are called to follow Jesus in obedience and join him on his mission. And it was Saul, or who later becomes Paul, it was Paul himself who shared with us that if we embrace that mission, there will be a degree of sacrifice and suffering. Paul would later go on to write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These are five evidences that Saul really did become a follower of Jesus and was changed by the grace and the mercy of God. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, in the Lord's table is represented, or the Lord's table represents the death of Jesus. His broken body, His shed blood. And you know, this death that we're going to reflect on this morning as we take the Lord's table was one of the things that so perplexed Saul before he became a Christian. Before he became a Christian, he thought to himself, and he tells us about this in Galatians chapter 3, he thought to himself, how is it if Jesus is the Messiah, how is it that he could be cursed of God? How is it that he could be... um, beaten and tortured and hung on a cross and shamed, not the anointed one, not the promised one, not the Messiah of God, surely he could not be cursed in this way. And then he encountered the resurrected Christ. Right? He saw him on the road to Damascus. And so now Saul has to deal with this. Okay, he is cursed of God, that is evident on the cross, but he is also vindicated by His resurrection from the dead, and blessed of God. How could these two things be true? Cursed of God and blessed of God. How could that be uh, true of the Messiah? Perhaps it was in those three days of darkness and wrestling and affliction that Saul began to put it together. Yes, the Messiah was cursed, but He was not cursed for His own sins. He was cursed for the sins of others, for the sins of His people so that all who would turn from their sins and trust in Him might be forgiven and receive the blessing of God. And Saul believed, and he was saved. My friends, if you've never believed and trusted in Christ, I hope that you will do so this morning. He will save you even now in the seat where you sit. And if you are trusting and believing in Christ, And we invite you to come to the table as we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table this morning to reflect on the death of Jesus, His broken body and shed blood, that He was cursed so that you might be forgiven and receive the blessing of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for Your Word and for the glorious and miraculous salvation that You granted to Saul. God, I pray that as we've reflected on this conversion this morning, that we would be reminded of your grace in our own lives, that we would, um, we would be thrilled 
and that we would give you glory and praise and be so very grateful. And Father, I pray for those here this morning who may have never tasted this grace that saves and changes. Lord, I pray that this morning, perhaps for the first time, they would. That they would look to Christ in faith, confessing their sins and trusting in Him and Him alone for their salvation. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time as we come to the Lord's table, we will...